Hello, welcome to Softcast episode 18, where we talk with experts in philosophy, spiritual practices, and ecology, and much more to extract influence and information you can use in your own lives. Our guest today is the Venerable Panyobasa, who is the former Theravada monk and has recently disrobed. With me as always for this group chat is the appropriately named, as we shall see, Mirror of Emptiness. Despite the fact today he was in fact playing the devil's advocate for the side of fullness, we're going to go through some of the amusing stories regarding Panyobasa's re-entry into the Matrix and perhaps attack the hardest subject of all to talk about, and that of course is non-duality and non-being from a Buddhist perspective and a little bit from my own perspective, which perhaps differs in small ways as we shall see and in as much as that is possible. We sought to achieve this with our all too human tools of dualistic language. Nevertheless, there's a lot here to unthink about, perhaps not best consumed while driving or engaging in pretty much any other task for that matter. Please enjoy. How has your reintroduction into the real world been in general? Are you finding it difficult or? Uh, not really. I mean, uh, I haven't started uh, um, like working at a regular job yet, which uh, there's, there's a very high likelihood that's going to be happening within the next few weeks. So that might change things uh, quite a lot. But right now I've just been sort of settling in and just taking care of a lot of stuff that has to be taken care of before I can uh, start, you know, going out and uh, being gone most of the time. So, so how do you reinsert yourself into society? Like, do you, I don't know what the system is over there, but do you have like social security or stuff like that that you need to go and get, you know, social security numbers or, you know, different certificates or documents that document your existence? <laughs> um. I have, I've had a social security number since I was a kid. So that's, that's already taken care of. Unfortunately, I, I still remember the number. So that, that is good. But, um, yeah, it's one of the main complications is that I have zero history. I have no credit rating. I have no tax records. I have no bank records. You know, it's just like I dropped out of the sky and, um, a lot of people just I'm like, they don't know how to deal with that. I've gotten letters just for no other reason than to inform me that they tried to do a credit rating check on me and they, I don't have a credit rating. You know, it's neither good nor bad. It's just non-existent. So that has been like one of the main challenges for me because you just can't do much of anything without a credit rating in, in America nowadays. How do you explain yourself to people? Like some guy at a credit card company or you know, whatever it is, like, how do you say, well, you know, I was a monk for 30 years. Like, is that literally what you do? That's exactly what I had to do just today. Like, um, um, I tried to, I have to get a credit card. It's like, um, in order to establish a credit rating, you have to, I mean, one of the main ways of doing that is to just have a credit card and pay your, pay your monthly bills, you know, on time. And, um, without a credit rating, you can't get a credit card. So, um, I applied for a regular credit card that didn't work. And so then, um, I applied for what is called a secured credit card where you just put money in the bank and, and whatever amount you have there designated 
as as like collateral and you can use the credit card for that amount but no more but even that they're having to do a security check on me because it turns out i haven't paid income tax in 30 years so i'm explaining to the lady on the phone you know they're doing like the security check on me and i just i just told her you know i was a buddhist monk i didn't handle money for 30 years and furthermore i was living in asia for most of that time and so I just don't have any records at all. I'm like they wanted my bank records for the past three months, but I didn't even have a bank account until last month. So this sort of thing is just coming up continually. And even just renting an apartment or when I was in New Orleans, I don't know if you uh, heard about that one, but when I was in New Orleans, I mean, I couldn't get a hotel room. I had just started handling money, but it turns out that um, nobody takes cash. Like no hotel in New Orleans would take cash. Yeah, everything had to be credit and I didn't have any. So I almost wound up sleeping on the street that night. <laughs> so no one explained to you like, um, like, I don't know, did you ever book hotels for yourself in the past or anything like that? Or was it, it was just all completely new um, to you? Was it something you'd done before? Obviously not, right? If yeah, yeah. Like in the 1980s, you just walked in and you ask if they have a room and they yeah. say yes. And then you just pull out your wallet and pay for it with right. cash. Right. You know, or you, yeah. you like you're going to rent an apartment. So you, you pay the first month and the last month's rent and uh, like a cleaning deposit. And they just figured if, if you can afford to fork out that amount of money, then you must be solvent enough. Then that was good enough. But now you have to have credit ratings. Over the past 30 years, it's money has become largely virtual. I mean, I mean, it always was kind of virtual after they got off the gold standard, but still, um, it's like it's all digital, just, uh, you know, it's all computer stuff now. Yeah. And you have, and, and you're all like, um, you know, you're, you're like hooked into the matrix sort of, you know, you gotta, they, they track you, you've got like this, uh, um, sort of like your, your um, financial identity that it, that is in the books and they just use that as a reference. And um, I'm, uh, I just don't have an identity yet. So it's like one thing I've had to do is I have to put money in the bank and then I take a loan uh, with that money in the bank as collateral and then I just pay it back, which is, you know, it's just like changing money from one hand to the other with a little bit of interest to the bank getting getting paid to them and that's all that's all there is you know so i borrow money and i pay it back and then i, I get a few little uh points on the credit rating and then eventually i'll be able to get a real credit card although really the only thing i use a credit card for would be to um, order something online so for context uh for the listeners um the venerable panyo basa has actually disrobed recently um there's, there's a lot of people that listen purely to audio um uh, to my show and they're probably not aware of this um can we talk through that a little bit what what like brought you to this uh decision um obviously it's momentous uh having been a monk for 30 years and then uh disrobing is no small uh commitment <laughs> can we talk through that a little bit sure yeah yeah i was a mahatera like a great elder and um uh... Um, there are there are three main reasons. You know, I've I've sort of stated my case on my blog and elsewhere. You know, giving my main reasons. But um, the main like reason number one, which is sort of the uh, the foundational reason that allowed the other reasons to uh, even be possible, is that uh, I just stopped making progress. 
in in the the practice of you know Buddhist traditional traditional Theravada Buddhist monasticism, you know, like living alone, meditating in caves, that kind of thing. I got as far with it as I was able to get, and then for years, it's sort of like the Red Queen in Wonderland, where you're having to run as fast as you can just to stay in the same place, you know, just to avoid backsliding. And um, like the best meditation of my life was more than 10 years ago. So that in itself was an indication that maybe I should try something else. It's like if you've stopped making progress in a certain um, system or a certain method, then you know it does make sense that uh, after several years of not making any significant obvious progress that you try something else. And so that's, that's one thing that I have done. That's, that's like one of the main reasons probably the the first and primary reason why I dropped out. Another fundamental reason is that I was burned out on living in Southeast Asia, just uh, not speaking English and um, eating rice and goop every day and just sweating and getting weird tropical diseases and this sort of thing. I wanted to come back to America or to the West somewhere where I could see eye to eye and communicate with people that um, you know, there's not like a culture barrier and a language barrier in between us where I could do more good by teaching Dhamma because the Burmese have their own like ethnic or traditional approach to Buddhism that I do not follow because I just am not a born Burmese Buddhist. And so um, I really wanted to live in the West. And as it turns out, practicing the rules strictly in the West is very very problematic it's almost impossible for example it's against the rules even to consent to somebody else handling money for my sake you know it's not only against the rules for me to handle money as a monk it's against the rules even for me to consent to anybody else doing it for me and that is just virtually impossible in the west you know even the strictest monks are going to consent to somebody handling mon- money for them. And there's all these other rules too that uh, are e- equally problematic. And um, I just had this idea from the very beginning that if I wasn't going to follow the rules strictly, I shouldn't be a monk. So that was that was another factor. That um, part, part of the problem is that um, Theravada Buddhism was designed for um, ancient northern india the ganges valley you know 500 bc and um the culture is so radically different between um that and and what we've got going in the west now that really um it's uh, a common analogy is that a, a buddhist monk or a theravada buddhist monk a bhikkhu living in the west is sort of like a, a tropical plant that can live naturally in the tropics but you come here to the temperate zone and you've got to be in a special protected environment with, with people taking care of you. You can't just live naturally anymore. So, yeah. So, I mean, it just doesn't, it doesn't work very well. It's um, it just doesn't fit the West very well. So there was that too. And uh, the third reason is um, I met a really sweet lady and we fell in love. So all of those three reasons combined and really, the first reason is the uh, the first one is um, the, the the primary one that allowed the other ones even to be possible. Do you think that um, uh, Panabasa in your 
new line that you're taking here, do you still have though a goal of having some further advancement in, uh, you know, meditation and realization and practice? Are you, are you, um, taking sort of a sabbatical for maybe a little while, uh, as far as, you know, uh, sowing a little bit of wild oats and enjoying yourself in the uh, civilian world, but maybe not becoming a monk, but still maybe practicing some sort of species and, uh, meditation and things like this or looking for new practices to take farther towards you know the realizations that you wanted to make with your Theravada Buddhist practice yeah your, well your, your monk practice I know you're still a Buddhist but I mean you know the same goals that you had as a monk um yeah I'm more Buddhist than anything else although that was another sort of an incidental reason why uh I was um, I could uh, disrobe as easily as I did is that really my my uh, perspective is is too broad to really fit within the confines of orthodoxy. So I was always kind of a heretic anyway. But um, getting to your question, um, I mean, you never really stop doing Dhamma practice. It's always going to be something. And um, um, I mean, there are some things that as a monk, you just never have to deal with. Like that's one of the great weaknesses of being a Buddhist monk now is that in the Buddhist time, you were wandering around homeless in a spiritual, but nevertheless, non predominantly non-Buddhist culture. And all these challenges and, and hardships would come upon you and you had to you had to deal with that. You know, you, were, you weren't living just a, a life of, of bliss and peace. That you know you're living in in like bandit and tiger infested jungles and meeting with you know really rough people who maybe hate monks or whatever, and um, that kind of a lifestyle. I mean, if you have the right attitude, then uh, yeah, living in the world is actually more conducive to helping stuff come up so that you can learn how to deal with it. So yeah, that's kind of like the approach I'm taking now is. Uh, sort of Ram Das talking about grist for the mill. It's like the mill has increased the amount of grist that it is milling. And uh, I'm learning how to, in, in a way, it's like I'm taking what I learned as a monk and now I'm applying it to a more, um, I don't know if you could even call it a more samsaric existence, but it's uh, uh, an existence where the people, um, a lot of the people that I'm dealing with obviously are, are uh, you know, kind of hyper samsaric, you know, they're completely blue pilled, you know, they think the matrix is real, that kind of a thing. So, um, yeah, like interpersonal interactions, that kind of thing can just like atrophy as a monk. I mean, you just don't really get a lot of experience with that. Like a monk when dealing with other people largely sees other people as stimuli, you know, in the seeing, there is only the seeing in the hearing, there is only the hearing, that kind of a thing. And so, in a way, you just close off and become introverted and really being open with another person um, that even the, the capacity for that can atrophy as a monk, which is really not all that great spiritually, it seems to me. I mean, you can become enlightened through just becoming a complete introverted hermit, I suppose. But um, uh, yeah, for, for me, I just got as far with that as I could. And so now I'm trying the um, just interacting with other people and, uh, you know, trying to have an uplifting effect on myself and other people at the same time, you know, by helping others, you help yourself by helping yourself, you help others. 
that sort of a thing. So it's, um, yeah, I'm surfing bigger waves now. I'm, I'm like a, a, at a more advanced difficulty setting and we're seeing how that goes. And, uh, uh, hopefully I won't totally wipe out, but thus far, um, I've been doing pretty well. If I do say so myself. So it's kind of idea of like a Zen in the marketplace, right? You can, uh, reach a calm state of mind in a forest and you know some ideal setting but if you can't maintain that amongst people um in the city or some community then you know maybe you're not as developed as as what you think yeah exactly yeah, yeah there's ram das had the story of the the spiritual hermit who's living out in the cave until just this light is shining from his face you know he's just in this state of of bliss he he thinks maybe he's he's enlightened even and so then he figures it's time to go into town he goes into town and on the on like on the sidewalk somebody just jostles up against him and it's and he's just indignant that somebody dared to jostle him you know and then boom it's like he's right back down in the just dealing in the muck again because um being like a spiritual hermit one thing it does it, it just like um separates you from the from certain challenges and um uh yeah it is a lot of stuff just doesn't have the opportunity to come up so it can just lie latent you know in, in buddhism they talk about anusia or latent tendencies so um you have to be challenged you have to have you have to have uh you know reality beating you over the head sometimes so you know reality in quotes i suppose but you have to have challenges in order to really make progress or at least i do i do best when i'm challenged like uh, when I was in school, I did best in the hardest classes because the easy ones were, you know, they, they were just kind of boring. You know, you just you don't pay full attention to that. So, um, yeah, I mean, if, if you have the right attitude, then, you know, Zen in the marketplace is, uh, you know, it's, it's just a higher difficulty setting. And, um, you know, getting back to the, the Zen in the marketplace thing, you know, they do say that Zen in the marketplace is a thousand times better or 10,000 times better than Zen on a cushion. And uh, also with regard to the Zen master, you know, they say that uh, the, the hall can resound with the master's shouts and blows from his stick can fall like rain, but still inside he's living in, you know, uh, stillness, stillness and emptiness. So that's, that's the goal now. That's what I'm, that's what I'm uh, practicing now. Have you read um, the Vilmakirti Sutra? Oh yeah, a long time ago, what the Vimalakirti Nirdesa Sutra, where, um, yeah, yeah, that was just like anti Hinayana propaganda, largely. Where it's well, like, uh, yeah, it is, but it has this sort of uh, theme of you know, kind of this guy who's in the world, but you know, and then yeah, they kind yeah, of he's, yeah, he's a bodhisattva who's more advanced than the arahant chief disciples of the Buddha himself, and he's going to like taverns and brothels and that sort of thing. Well, that's that's kind of pushing it, it seems to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it is. Yeah, it, it has it has a very polemical sort of uh, plan yeah, to yeah. it. For sure. There's that one but, like propagandist it, it, scene where it's I think it's Sariputta, who is like the the Buddha's right hand man, who tries to sit down on Vimalakirti's chair, and the the chair is like growing so that he's like a little kid, and his feet won't touch the floor, and that sort of thing. So. Yeah, yeah. It, it's definitely kind of shameless propaganda to some degree. It has some of that spirit of Zen in the marketplace, so it's maybe a, a uh, you know, a, 
a seed a seed of that anyways and it yeah it's in there yeah i mean that's that's kind of one of the the messages of it i mean obviously he's more advanced than sariputta and mogalana but he's going to the brothels and the and the taverns so he's he's managing it better than they are even though he's uh in a more samsaric environment or a more um like crudely or blatantly samsaric environment right it kind of reminds me a little bit of a book i read uh, agora on the left hand of god which is a book about the uh, agora sadhus in india um who take the left hand path by kind of like a deliberate engagement with filth and everything that you would consider to be unpleasant um, as part of that, you know, they smoke ganja, um, as they call it. Um, you know, they sit at the charnel grounds, um, they drink alcohol and they do all this stuff, you know, they drink out of skulls and, and this kind of thing. Do, do you, is it similar? Like, is there something to be said for exposing yourself to these things that are a part of, uh, life and, being able to do it in a way where you're you're detached or distant from it, which I think is the ultimate endpoint of that practice, I'm led to believe. Not that I know much about it. Like early Christianity was sort of similar, you know, you live in the world but not of the world, you know. But um, I think like deliberately seeking out, you know, skulls to drink out of and that sort of thing might not be um, a good uh, layman's middle path. I think just living a relatively simple and, uh, you know, non-harmful life and um, just taking life as it comes and dealing with it you know um, I think that would be uh, an appropriate path for at least a Theravada Buddhist I really can't speak for the Tibetans or the uh, the the ones taking the left hand path but um, um, yeah I mean you just uh, live a relatively peaceful or, or like a relatively simple life and uh, you know don't don't uh, follow after like you know, luxurious uh, things that aren't really necessary in life and just try to, to keep it, you know, to a, a reasonable minimum. And still, I mean, life is going to be tossing all kinds of stuff at you, especially if you're, you're outside of a monastery or outside of a cave. That's a nice segue, actually, um, into kind of the reason that we're having this conversation, I guess. Um, I, I was reading one of your blog posts recently, uh, one of many middle paths, and it really spoke to me because I've been dealing with, not dealing, it's the wrong word, but thinking about a lot of these things, a lot of the things that that article um, brought up. Um, and a couple of questions arose out of this and amongst them is this idea of non-dualism, which is something that I've been thinking about a lot lately, as much as you can think about something like that, which is kind of an absurd notion anyway. but. But before we um, flirt with the ridiculous, um, can we go through this blog post? Um, and, and actually, you said in, in the introduction, it was one of your um, more popular Dharma talks. But um, what's the general theme that you're trying to project with that, that article, just for the audience? Well, I started off with, um, you know, the, the Buddha's first sermon. Traditionally, he was discussing the middle path between self-indulgence and self-torture. And most Buddhists nowadays don't give that much thought because they don't want to torture themselves and they can't afford the, you know, the, the extreme luxury. And so, you know, it just kind of is ignored largely. 
But um, there's many different ways of interpreting a middle path. You know, even like um, a ter- eternalist view and annihilationist view. You know, you've got an eternal, you live eternally, you know, your spirit lives forever, or when you're dead, you're dead. And Buddhism follows a middle path between those two. And um, just, uh, you know, even like in, in some of the suttas, you know, there's like a middle path even between existence and non-existence. It's like, you know, you can't say that things completely really exist but they don't completely really not exist either and so there's like this middle path almost like practically unthinkable middle path through that but um the main point i was making in that that one blog post is uh it was sort of a variation on the original the middle path of the the first sutta where um you know it's the middle path between self-torture and self-indulgence and um in the west there's a, a concept that doesn't get mentioned much in the in the Buddhist text, and that's the concept of being triggered, where um, you know everyone has at least two different personalities. You've got the personality when everything's going fine, and usually that personality is pretty nice. And then you've got the personality when things just go wrong, and you know some people just go into a rage or they'll go into you know self self loathing or 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 whatever. There's all different ways of being triggered. And um, most people just try to avoid that. You know, they try to live their life carefully so that everything is is like predictable and relatively safe and manageable. And um, again, it's like they're avoiding the challenges. They're avoiding having to face the stuff that they have to face in order to work their karma out. You know, they're just trying to avoid the heavy stuff. And you don't have to seek it out. But I mean, it's like the middle path between seeking out things that trigger you and just avoiding at all costs things that trigger you. So that was the main point of the, uh, the blog post or the, the essay is uh, that that in itself is a, a useful and relatively powerful uh, interpretation of a middle path where, you know, you're, you're, you're not like avoiding these, these things that really trigger you, but you're not seeking them out either. You're just kind of um, just taking life as it comes and, uh, not trying to fix everything and arrange everything so it's all predictable and safe because we need the challenges in order to make progress or in order to help us wake up that sounds uh you know kind of like a uh classical call to virtue too really kind of just uh doing doing what you have to do not a not making trouble not not avoiding uh what comes your way that you have to face well, you know. Yeah, sure. Like, like for example, just always telling the truth. I mean, that can yeah. get you into trouble sometimes, but um, you don't fudge on the truth in order to stay out of trouble. It's like, well, your duty is to tell the truth or remain silent, and if you can't remain silent, then you're just going to have to take the hits that come. And so you just accept that and, and keep moving forwards, that sort of thing. Right. <clears throat> yeah, actually, it's interesting. I heard you talk about not lying, which is something I always try to do anyway. But I never realized that staying silent was actually an effective tactic. And I've, I've been using that a lot lately to, to great effect. I just, just don't talk anymore if, if, ra- rather than lie. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. very difficult not to lie in, in like polite society. In civilized society, you're pretty much required to lie. You know, you say uh, you're sorry when you're not really sorry or I'd like to, but I can't. But when really you can, you just don't want to, that sort of thing. 
so one of the one of the interesting um, dichotomies that I've been thinking about is this idea of existence and non-existence. Can we talk through that a little bit and and how Buddhism deals with this? I, I personally have been wrestling with this in the context of non-dualism, and I'm finding it difficult to reconcile how a middle path is possible between existence and non-existence. What 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 do these things mean to you, um, Panyavasa, in terms of how Buddhism deals with with these notions of non-existence and existence and 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 reality in general? Yeah, well, it's you. I don't think you really can intellectually wrap your head around it because the way the intellect works is in duality. You know, it's it's like the the um, Aristotle's laws of thought. Everything has to be a or not a. You know, it's, it's a duality, you know, A and not A pretty much makes the whole universe. And um, uh, it, it is like fundamental, even even in early Theravada, you know, there are suttas that say that existence and non-existence are like a conditioned mental state. Or you know, get into Mahayana, it, it just, they just take the ball and run with it. Like the Heart Sutra, you know, is saying that form is emptiness, the very emptiness is form. You know, that's pretty much how it starts. Or the Sin Sin Ming saying there are no two such things as existence or non-existence. Oh, wait, that was the Tibetan Book of the Great Liberation. And the Sin Sin Ming, which is by the third patriarch of Zen or attributed to him, is saying, you know, what is is the same as what is not. What is not is the same as what is. And really, it's like existence and non-existence are both um, perceptions. And reality is not a perception. I mean... um, if you're going to experience ultimate reality, you can't do it by perceiving it because once you perceive something, you've you've dragged it into like dualistic symbols. So you have to experience reality as it truly is, which is um, from the intellectual point of view, an unthinkable void. And so you can't really wrap your head around it intellectually. You just have to experience it directly, like through a mystical experience or something, or through really deep meditation, or through being enlightened, I assume. For me, um, I, I've been engaging in probably what I call a dialectic around um, the ontology of, of non-dualism, and particularly non-self, and how these things seem to be connected to me. Um, for example, when I... Um, sit in zazen i I notice that things arise uh thoughts arise uh you know bodily sensations etc everyone knows this when they meditate they they notice these things uh thoughts arise and ultimately the perception of what is i'm presuming that is also a kind of a construct that that is arising and in that respect i think that the self is is illusory in some sense so so the i that takes responsibility for all these things is not substantive it doesn't exist because i i in a sense am not doing anything at all it is it is a happening an occurrence um this is kind of what i feel like is is the insight of of no self um does the Buddha specifically say anything about this kind of perception, this kind of experience? Um, <clears throat> and I'd, I'd like to start to investigate how the notion of there not being a self and the notion of dualism are related. Because I think 
it would be a fruitful discussion to, to go into why they are kind of related and what, what maybe some of the implications are. Yeah, well, um, Nagarjuna took it even farther and he uh, pretty much identified um, like Padicca Samupada or dependent co-arising with no self and with emptiness. And, um, you know, it pretty much dis- described the reality of everything where everything is um, devoid of any kind of individual self, self-essence or self-existence. And um, no self is 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 a tricky one because it's it's obviously uh, it's obviously difficult for people to understand. Just going with um, if you look in the text, there are several different attempted explanations of no self. Like um, one of the earliest ones is the the simile of the chariot. You know, where a chariot is made of parts. You know, it's got the the boards and the axles and the wheels and all and all that. And you can't say that. Uh, any, any one of those individual parts is the chariot. You can't say that just a, a random assemblage of those parts is the chariot, that uh, the chariot is just a kind of convenient label that you put onto a certain configuration of parts. And, um, you know, you could swap out a wheel or something and, and for the sake of convenience, you say, you say it's the same chariot. But, um, um, yeah, it, it's, just, uh, it's just like a symbol that you slap onto uh, probably another symbol, you know, it's, it's just a perceptual way of how the mind works that, that we use that. Or another uh, interpretation of no self is uh, from the Buddha's uh, attributed, uh, traditionally his second, his second discourse after his enlightenment, which caused the first five um, disciples to become enlightened, which is the Anatta Lakana Sutta. And in that one, he's just claiming that... Uh, if you don't have complete control over something, then then you really can't consider it to be yourself. And then he points out that all of the five khandas, all of the five aggregates, really are not entirely under our control. And so going with that also, um, we don't have a self. And that, that would also presumably rule out free will also, because uh, sankara khanda, which is uh, volition, is also uh, not entirely under our control. But um, I think I may have wandered away from uh, the gist of of, uh, of of your question. No, not at all. That's that's great. I think we're really get, getting to the right place for sure. Because because and talking about free will in general, which I've come to un- understand is a, a rather absurd concept. Actually, um, I don't know how it arose in culture, but it just seems ridiculous. The more I think about it, and and. Even sitting in meditation for, for a minute, you, you kind of realize how absurd it is if you view it the right way, which of course is that all these things are happening kind of without my conscious control anyway. So how am I willing anything at all? And I, and I, think, I think that that does tie into where I want to go with this non-dualism concept. But just to mix things up a bit, because I know um, the mirror of emptiness, who is playing the part ironically of the dualist in all of this, um, that we're going to invite him now to maybe add a bit of, uh, uh, of his own thoughts to this to this notion of uh, of, of no self. Uh, I, I I could say this that uh, <clears throat> there's always that question. Then you know when you are in meditation, and I agree, you have all of this. Um, you observe phenomenon. You see your thoughts coming out of nowhere. You see your 
body doing whatever your body is going to do. You experience this sort of rising and falling of things. But what is it that seeing and noticing this, you know, what, what is that? What is the, what is the noticer? What is the, the observer of these rising and falling of things? And, um, couldn't that be said to be something of a self or something within us that's connected to a greater self, perhaps, you know, like the, uh, uh, you know, a world soul that's taken individuation and matter or something. I don't know, but you know, um, I think there's a case to be made for that. Like who is this, who is this observer? Most people, don't ever get in touch with that. And the reason why people have a idea of free will is because to them, they are making up, you know, as they do things, they're making up this story uh, as they go along. I actually had a tweet just like a few weeks ago that I thought was good. It came in my head that, you know, those rich Richard Attenborough uh, nature documentaries. Oh yeah. Where, uh, you know, Especially the old ones. The newer ones are kind of different. But the old ones, they would say, like, here's Mr. Badger. He wakes up in the morning, and he does this, and he does that. And, you know, and they'll have a little drama, and it'll be, you know, this little nature documentary. And I said, you know those documentaries? You are that animal, and you are that narrator, you know? That's, um, that's sort of how we are. And most people are like that regardless of whether there's a self or not, you know, I, I think most people aren't in touch with it, but I think there's a case to be made for you noticing that you are the narrator and the animal. What is it that's noticing that, yeah, I, for all intents and purposes, don't have free will, but how am I noticing this? You know what I mean? Yeah, so, I think there's there's different levels you could you could take that. For for example, getting back to the Sin Sin Ming, there's this one verse that goes, the object is an object for the subject, the subject is a subject for the object. So they they like dependently co-arise. You've got the object and the subject that that views the object. And um just based on my own introspection on that particular level of of uh whatever you want to call it. It's like the uh, the subject, the observing subject, is really just uh, all of the the sort of the the whatever is surrounding the object. You know, it's sort of like all these mental states going on. Like, for example, the carpenter pounding nails. You know, his thumb is part of the subject until he accidentally hits it with the hammer, and then it suddenly becomes the object because he's all of a sudden observing that thumb because it hurts like hell. You know, but before he hit it. It was just part of all the background stuff that was this part of his environment, part of who he was, you know. So um, just every everything that's in your 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 uh, subjective self, you know, you, you can observe that. And then all of a sudden it stops being your subjective self and starts being the object. And then as soon as you d direct your attention to something else, it kind of blends back into the subject again. Whereas the subject is just this amalgamation of feelings and perceptions and so forth. And so many of them, you know, stay enough the same that there's this sense of continuity that, that continues with that. So that's kind of a superficial explanation, I suppose. But you could go deeper and just say that consciousness itself could be viewed as a kind of, you know, as... You know, the Upanishads define Brahman as, you know, just 
formless consciousness. You know, just the, the, the entire universe is pervaded by consciousness. And we're just this one strange little part of it that uh, has become so reflexive or self-referential that it sort of considers itself to be separate from, from the rest of it. So, I mean, you, you could view it like that also, where, where like what we really are, you know, God and, and you know, our soul or whatever could just be this consciousness. But then you, you go on to the level of um, where, I mean, anything that's completely infinite and formless, you can't really say that it does or does not exist. So that's, that's kind of what Buddhism does. It's like you can't really reify an absolute and have it still be an absolute. And so you can't really even talk about it. Yeah. Right. I, I like the notion of like you described hitting your thumb with a hammer. It seems to me, and, and one of the, the best ways I've heard it described is that consciousness or what you were talking about, um, mirror of emptiness, the noticer is almost like a contraction of energy. And this is possibly what I've been thinking is the self. It's this contraction of energy that creates this kind of dualistic uh, separation from all that is. And it's, it's this um, separation. This is where we get this, this notion of a self and the, and, and the experience of an observer. But the experience of the observer is still in the totality of everything that is anyway. Yeah, I think so. It just becomes yeah. self-referential. And yeah. so it, uh, um, yeah, it just uh, starts believing that it's it's on its own or it's separated from everything else. But also self-reference can produce paradox. You know, like uh, Kurt Gödel, you know, he proved that, uh, you know, any, any self-referential equation, for example, can produce um, just, it can produce paradoxes that, can, that uh, they can neither be true nor false. And um, that's that's one hypothesis I've got to account for free will. Assume because in Buddhism, both free will and determinism are both rejected, and you're just left with this kind of uh, you know unthinkable you know somehow something, and you, you don't even you're not even supposed to really try and figure it out. But um, um, I kind of like that notion though. I like the idea that it's just this. There's no time as such. It's just this blah <laughs> that it just always is does that make sense but it, it, it's there's no time to to constrict it it's just this ever-present kind of chaos almost that you can't put down to anything in particular it's just uh, yeah you, you, you can never really figure it out you can just you can never figure out reality intellectually because once once you've started dealing with the intellect, then you're dealing with these perceptual symbols that are just uh, trying to symbolize reality, and they're not really reality anymore. Mm -hmm. So it's like you know the letters T R E E are very different from an actual tree, and that's what the intellect is doing. Or or you know we might think in pictures, but even a picture of a tree is is radically different from an actual tree. And really, we're just stuck in in like words and pictures and that sort of thing, and uh, we we can't even get close to to reality as it is, so long as we're dealing with thoughts and perceptions. What if you uh, you uh, go on like a Platonist sort of uh, bent here, you know, meditate on what is it that makes a tree a tree, and sort of like 
try to get into the world of forms of how forms manifest into this reality of ours, you know, and then beyond the forms you have like the intellect and then up to the the one and that sort of thing. Ever try Um, things like that? Well, I mean, you're still dealing with the, the shadows flickering on the walls of Plato's cave. You know, you can get really subtle and everything, but so long as you're dealing with perception, then you're dealing with samsara. So, I mean, you can understand samsara really, really elegantly, but still, it's you're never going to get to ultimate reality through thinking. Right. No, I see what you mean, but maybe, maybe the acts of those sort of contemplations, you know... Um, tear apart the cave you know you're making your that that's the process of getting yourself realizing that there is something out of the cave and that you're walking out of it you know what i mean you're you're finding a path through these sort of exercises maybe not just strictly platonic exercises but even buddhist meditations and things where you still have to you know dwell in samsara to and and make your way out of it you know you're like in a in, in the bottom of a swimming pool you know you gotta be in the water for a while yet before you bounce out but you have to go through that water first you know what i'm saying i don't know but, uh, uh yeah although i mean reality is is always here where we we don't like leave samsara and enter nirvana because uh you know, realities, we're, we're already there. We just, uh, we're so confused because of our perceptual process. You know, we're so distracted by the thoughts and feelings and everything that we just uh, don't notice that we're already just soaking in ultimate reality. Hmm. This, this is a problem, just quickly, that I have with the notion of a path, and it ties into what you're saying here. If, if there's no self and reality is always in its totality all the time even my perception of not being complete and being separate that is still the totality of everything so if there is no free will because everything is already as it is then what if you have this realization then in a sense there's no path as well because everything is already here all the time yeah mm. so the path is 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 it's in a way it's sort of like a zen koan where you just follow the path until you just um you just reach a, a dead end or something or another way of describing it is you could say that there is a path and you follow that path but the path doesn't lead to nirvana it doesn't lead to reality you just follow that path until eventually you just realize that it's unnecessary and then you just sort of bail out sideways hmm. like a lot of of hinduism you know they're trying to follow the path you know just they're refining and refining and refining their consciousness until they get into these really superhuman mental states but still they just no matter how many times you sweep the floor there's always going to be dust and you're never going to reach the end of that path but you like in Buddhism, especially, I mean, some people can become enlightened from a relatively crude state. You don't necessarily have to purify yourself. I mean, there's there's no end to the path. So you just follow the path until finally you realize that it's it's just kind of pointless. And then you just let go and you're there already. So it's kind of like a Zen koan where mm. there's just no real resolution. You just uh, eventually just give up. Hmm. Because, yeah, as you said, and the thing is, 
whatever the practice is, the practice of purification or whatever it is, it nevertheless is going to be incomplete because you're trying to sate the sense of separateness from everything. And you're, you're trying to make the experience of the self better in a sense. But that's not the point as far as I can see, because that is still a deluded state, that, that state of separateness. And, and what it, it, you'll never get to the ultimate understanding from practicing something because practicing something assumes there is something to be found at the end of everything. Yeah. And nirvana just does have, it doesn't have a cause. It doesn't, you know, it's, it's unconditioned. So it doesn't have any causes or any effects. And so nothing that you do is going to make you be enlightened. And I think um, you know, there are some old Buddhist texts that indicate that that's really what you're doing is you're trying to become enlightened you know, it's like you reduce all of your desires down to this one last desire for enlightenment and you try with all your heart. And then finally you realize that nothing you do is going to get you there because doing is karma and, and nirvana is not the result of karma. It's not the result of anything. And so you just get to that point where you realize that it's your desire for enlightenment is your last hindrance to actually just being there because you were already there from the beginning. It's almost like the path itself is a trick. Yeah, it's like skillful means, like like in Mahayana talks about skillful means. Hmm. You have to feel uh, doing all those things is making yourself like amenable to waking awakening of to that awakening, because obviously you know, barring any you know sort of crazy, maybe this happens at once in a you know million years, but you know that average Patujana worldling doesn't even think about these things and isn't going to just awaken and see that sort of thing at all. So the yeah. people who are usually awakened are making themselves amenable with that awakening. And that's where, you know, uh, uh, practice and precepts and things like this go because you're still, you're stilling your, you know, regular worldling desires in a way yeah. that makes you amenable to see this. You know what I mean? Whether or not yeah. you actually come at it. Or but can we say there's an awakening if there is nothing to awaken? Yeah, well, that's just part of the whole paradox that you can't really wrap your head around. Once you start dealing with uh, enlightenment or ultimate reality, then, uh, yeah, just trying to figure it out doesn't work. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that because, I mean, you know, wor words fall short, you know, definitely at a certain point. You know, I mean, we kind of know yeah. what we're talking about here. We're like, we're pointing towards something, you know, but we can't really, uh, you know, we can't make our, you know, uh, language adequate to what we're talking about because really it's just kind of an intuition, I think, that we have. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So I think one way you could, you could uh, describe the path is just reducing distractions because people are just so distracted by samsara you know all the the shadows flickering on the the wall of the cave if you can reduce that enough that finally uh, you know if you can just like eliminate the shadows then you're less likely to identify reality with the flickering shadows or like one example i use a lot is if, if consciousness is water and mental states are like waves 
then most people are just completely distracted by waves. You know, the, this wave I like better than that wave, and I want this wave, and I hate that wave, and, and, and on and on. You know, this wave is pretty, and that wave is ugly, and they don't realize that it's all the same water. But if you're able to, like through, um, you know, yogic practice, to still the waves, to calm, so you've got like a flat sea, then at least you can get this insight that the waves are not reality. And then you just identify with the water. And then when the waves come back again, then you, if, you, if you're good, this would be like Zen in the marketplace. You still see it just as water. It's just different manifestations of the same water. And like a deist or a theist would call it God or, you know, like a, a Hindu might call it Brahman or something. And uh, but but Buddhism generally just doesn't even touch it. You know, you just can't reify the absolute. And so they don't even go there. Hmm. It's interesting. Do you think like the original Buddha presumably would have seen things would be a lot simpler than what's been passed down and, and worked on in later generations? And what I mean by that, do you think the essential message has been obfuscated in, in the generations yeah, sure. that follow? Yeah, definitely. Like um, probably one of the, the oldest Buddhist texts in existence is the Atakawaga of the Sutanipata. And it's just saying a monk should not believe anything. He should have no belief, no perception. You know, you just you're just living in, in emptiness essentially, and um, that's just it's it's scary. You know, most people just cannot deal with just a blank void. You know, just pure radical mysticism. They just can't cope with that. And so when Buddhism becomes uh, a more popular system, and you've got lots of people maybe who don't have a deep spiritual calling, who are who are entering the sangha. You know, they're just scholars, they're philosophers, they like cooking up systems. And so you wind up with these huge um, ecclesiastical, you know, scholastic works like Abhidhamma. And uh, I mean, that was one of the, the original inspirations from Mahayana was just trying to get away from all the systematization and, you know, trying to label and categorize everything, which I don't think the Buddha really was teaching. It's just that... Uh, there's just this void, you know, nature hates a vacuum. And so intellectual human nature also, uh, you know, abhors a vacuum. And so we just start filling it up with uh, philosophical concepts mm, and so forth. Absolutely. On. I think in a way as well, that that radical voidness is a kind of, it's it's not a hopeful message, particularly. It's, it's qu quite depressing and challenging in some ways. It's like if your average person were to, hear this and and accept it it's it's not necessarily a message of hope so i can understand people would have trouble dealing with notions like this and, and maybe that's where that comes from like people need to systematize because that that realization is not not hopeful overall because it's it's threatening to the to the self ultimately it's threatening to the eye yeah enlightenment is a kind of death or at least you could view it that way yeah. You know, when you, when you stop having a, an ego, I mean, that's, that's, you, you essentially die. But still, I mean, it's, it's enlightenment, obviously, at least if you can believe the sages, it's infinitely better than not being enlightened. So it's, I mean, it's really not, it shouldn't be anything really scary or bad. Yeah, you know, that's what I'm merging with God. You know, so you become God in a way, but you, you stop being your own individual little tiny ego in order to become that. Yeah, it seems as if everything falls away, like you have this must have this realization and <clears throat> the 
the notions of the illusion of separateness falls away and it's kind of like you just i don't know everything must become a lot lighter <laughs> yeah yeah well i've i've as a general rule i have very little use for hegel but the way he starts his logic the way he starts his dialectic is really profound where he he starts off with the the very first thesis is just absolute being pure being and then he points out as the antithesis to that that pure non-being or pure nothingness is really indistinguishable from pure everything because there's no determinate content in either one. They're, they're both like blank because there's, there's nothing uh, distinct in, you know, there's it's just like no boundaries, nothing, you know, it's just they just merge together into the same thing. So then he says you have to have a distinction and that's where perception comes in. You know, it's like uh, um, the Tao Te Ching, you know, it's like... Uh, the one comes from the Tao and the two comes from the one and then from the from the two comes the 10,000 things, you know. But um, uh, ultimately, it's, it's getting back to the whole, you know, the, the false distinction between existence and non-existence that uh, it's just the reality is so completely off the scale that, uh, you know, it's, it's obviously infinitely better than, than what we're in right now. But still, we just cannot hope to begin to comprehend it intellectually yeah and i think uh you know even though you know the materialists are you know i talk to people sometimes and they say um you know when you die there's just nothing and some of them it scares them but some of them find some uh uh some measure of peace in that too like you know that's good I want to go back to nothing, but my intuition tells me the fact that I'm here now, <clears throat> still perceiving or whatever this multiplicity means that that is going to happen again, unless you can find some sort of a way to transcend or see the big picture. You know, I, I, yeah. I do definitely believe in this uh, idea of uh, rebirth or continuation or the details of it, I don't know, but the fact that I'm here now, <laughs> perceiving this world, uh, and perceiving suffering and perceiving, uh, you know, agitation and all these different things, lets me know that um, that can happen again. Could could you say though, just just as a counterpoint, that if if there is if there is no self here now that exists then there is there is no suffering because there is no self that is experiencing suffering so the experience of there not being a self negates the fact that even that there's something to die ultimately because there's nothing here that's living well yeah but that's i mean a high state you know i would say that that's what you're working towards maybe realizing that but that's not how you're experiencing it you know Saying that intellectually is one thing, but, uh, you know, I, I know I don't, I can say that and I can think about it and I say, well, that makes sense. But With some of the work I've been doing, I think that maybe catching glimpses of that is not as unattainable as what people think. Just to be very controversial here. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like maybe 
a big thing that's happened is the systematizing of religions. And, and I suppose we were talking about Buddhism before as one example, um, has, has led to this notion that these things are completely unattainable, <clears throat> that, um, you know, we have to struggle through, you know, hundreds of lifetimes to ever have any of these perceptions at all. Um, but I, I feel like maybe sometimes that isn't the case and that actually some of these perceptions and glimpses I think that's the best way to describe them. They're glimpses, perhaps more attainable than what people think. And that in some ways, the intellectual dialectic, perhaps mixed with some meditational experience, is adequate to have some of these realizations or, or to have the ability to at least realize that ultimately the the seeking is a pointless endeavor in itself because everything is already okay because it's already in its totality all the time anyway so there is nothing to be sought um and and i would say in many ways um to me that this is not just an intellectual realization that i've had i wouldn't classify it as that even though talking about it right now is still a concept. So to talk about this, it, it's automatically incorrect. So it's it's kind of silly in a way to even talk about it. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, some people do have their uh, their realizations just accidentally, you know, like Ramana Maharshi. Um, supposedly, he had uh, a realization uh, just as a result of having a panic attack when he was a, a high school student doing his homework. And that was that was good enough for him. Mm. I, had a, I had a bit of a panic attack today. I've been having some of those lately. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But uh, I would say, um, like you're talking about the realization, uh, and I was saying, you know, you were saying it's not just an intellectual one, and you know, I'm not trying to. to mean it or anything well, perhaps, wrong, perhaps it's more just quickly it's perhaps it's more the realization that there's nothing to be realized it can't be realized okay. yeah is All that right. better yeah. well from my perspective that's like uh intellectualism unless it can be tested against something to where you can take that realization uh, with you because i mean like Say, example, you know, the early Buddhists, like uh, Tanabasa was talking about earlier, would meditate in uh, tiger and bandit-ridden jungles, you know what I mean? And uh, the Thai forest tradition, you know, Ajahn Mahanam, he recommended this too, because you would have these realizations, but would you, how would you feel if there was a tiger growling right beside you, you know what I mean? Or if there was a tiger eating you, what sort of mind state would you take with you as you die? And, you know, your your life force or your mind stream or whatever that's going to go with you uh, as you die. I know we're saying there's no you to go with you, but here you are all the same. Uh, is, is that going to bear fruit, you know? Because uh, I feel definitely kind of look at it that way you know i look at it like uh you know when you're facing death that's kind of where that 
that's where your theories are tested, you know. That's where you have an idea of what uh, what you've been working towards. Is it any is it any good, or or are you going to be clinging to life? Are you going to be clinging to something uh, to your perceptions of yourself and something that's going to keep you earthbound or perhaps even lower or some other? I could say that I don't know how I would react because it wouldn't be me reacting as such. Yeah. Okay. Plus, it could be the triggered version, or uh, also, I mean, just from the Buddhist, the Theravada Buddhist point of view, it's like we're dying every moment anyway. So, I mean, that sort of thing is happening all the time. We're we're always dying from one moment to the next. Yeah, I get that, but when you're actually like thicker, yeah, you got the knife brutal. to your throat or whatever. Yeah, I mean, that's that's another that's another story. <laughs> You know what I mean? Or get in a car accident, get that frozen feeling while you're in the car accident, you know, that's, that's a different feeling of dying. Even if you don't die, then, you know, the intellectual idea that we're dying every second. So, so I can say that everything for me recently has become a lot easier and a lot lighter and a lot of things have fallen away, but nevertheless, things still arise. This is not a cessation of everything things still things still occur so i would say if someone held a knife to my throat quite simply that i don't know what the reaction would be because i'm not the i'm not the reaction i'm not anything there would be there would be a, a happening that arose but i would not be controlling what arose yeah, I assume my pulse rate would increase considerably, yeah. but uh, it's hard to say yeah. exactly what would happen, you know, whether I would just enter into like a mystical state. Like I've had a few you know, close calls with death, you know, like getting in a car that's, that's sliding out of control, that kind of thing. And uh, as a general rule, it's like uh, my mind just becomes crystal clear. I stop thinking and uh, time slows down and I do whatever is necessary to keep me alive and only after the danger is passed, I'll start actually thinking again. So it's hard to say. I mean, a lot of people might just freak out under the same circumstances, but uh, I, I think I've, uh, I have enough wisdom where um, if, if I was very close to death, I think, uh, um, I mean, I'd like to think that I'd, I'd enter into more or less of a, an expanded or mystical state, but uh, we'll just have to wait and see. Mm. Yeah, it reminds me of Fight Club, actually, in Fight Club, how he crashes the car where his pers- alter ego does, and he says, we just had a near-life experience. <laughs> Could be something yeah. to that. I, I, I've had similar experiences, Ben, about like in, uh, in you know situations where I thought I was going to die or, or something where I just kind of close off and, and also kind of like... Uh, uh, like you were saying, Alex, where you just uh, observe what's going on. Like, um, you know, back in like September, I had to go take the ambulance ride. I had all the symptoms of a heart attack. That's what they put in the ambulance because my heart was like racing and going this and that. And, they, and that's when I started to have like these occasional panic attacks and things. I don't really know exactly why because I don't feel like, you know, mm-hmm. crazier time but that one was really severe i mean like my heart was going like almost up to 200 uh whatever beats a minute you know what i mean and i was like yeah. uh feigning so but like and i had this feeling like well 
shit, I just might be about to die, you know? <laughs> and I did feel kind of like that, but I was kind of, uh, I don't know, just observing it in a way. Like, even though they said, you know, this is probably, uh, you know, some sort of panic attack type thing that may be introduced. I mean, they kept me in the hospital. My, my EKG was weird, but like, I was sort of just in it. You know, I was up, I adopted the role of the observer, kind of like when you're meditating. I mean, it wasn't comfortable. It was physically uncomfortable and mm -hmm. somewhat painful, but I was, uh, I was kind of just observing it, you know, like this is what's happening. You know what I mean? I wasn't like crying or freaking out or anything. No, oh, good. Maybe, I, mean, I don't know why they happen, honestly, because I don't feel like freaked out or something all the time. It's not like I'm a nervous wreck, but I mean, maybe I am subconsciously. I don't know what a psychologist would say, but, uh, I do kind of have these lately. And that, that was the most severe one, but, and I really did think, well, you know, and even the people, the ambulance, when they came, thought, well, because I was at work and everything they called them. They were like, hmm. yeah, this isn't take you to the hospital. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, anyway, so that's just, one thing I wasn't—it wasn't a mystical experience, but it was kind of uh, meditative in a way, or just kind of clear, you know, like do what I have to do, uh, you know, listen to what they're telling me, but just kind of observing it. Okay, it's like I, there was my heart racing out of control again, but I wasn't like you know looking out or anything. Um, what I find interesting, Panyo Basa, about what you've done so that you've disrobed and you've gone away to some degree from the formality of that Buddhist path. Um, and and w w what's interesting about this to me is that you, you, you as such, the self reached an, an end point of as far as that path could go in, uh, for convenience's sake. And now um, you're engaged in something else, another path, um, do, do, do you think, and I'm just putting this out there for general discussion, that the path itself is in fact illusory in some sense? Is there anywhere to go? I often ask myself this, and it's a question I've been struggling with a bit lately, if there is really a self to struggle with anything, but is there anywhere for me to go if everything is already here? Yeah, ultimately, no, but um, uh, it, so long as it seems like we're in samsara, I mean, that seems to be good enough. You know, it's like you can say if you've got a toothache that uh, the toothache isn't real, but it seems real enough. Mm. And so uh, um, it could be that, um, I mean, I have had experiences where, for example, I was in Burma and uh, it was just so hot so much of the time that I finally just kind of snapped one time and I was just like cussing and, and like slamming stuff just you know I just couldn't take it anymore and there have been a few times when I've been in a state like that where there's just this um this strange almost like a dissociation happens where suddenly I become like an actor just playing the role of somebody throwing a conniption where there's like the two levels of reality at the same time there's still you know the, the, the crude me that's like cussing and slamming stuff and, and just having a meltdown. But then there's just this other level that's just observing and just completely detached 
and just, you know, just watching. And you get the feeling that that level that's just watching and detached, like a, a more enlightened version of you or something is always there. It's just that the, you know, the, the little ego person or, or, you know, the, the meat puppet or whatever is just so caught up in its own thoughts and feelings that it just doesn't notice that most of the time. But that's what really struck me. The, the times that that has happened is just this really strong impression that that higher level of consciousness that's just observing and not getting involved is always there. So I guess what we're trying to do is just trying to stop identifying with the little meat puppet ego self and um, just kind of let go of that. And it might continue doing its business because nature takes its course. But uh, um, eventually you reach a certain level of wisdom where you just stop identifying with it. Is, is part of, do you think, is part of letting go of that, letting go of seeking something? Like, like I was thinking the other day that like, if you ever seen those old um, black and white silent films, how there's a guy who, um, you know, is trying to pick his hat up off the ground and he keeps kicking it away every time he gets close to it. And it's the process of trying to pick it up that makes him not be able to pick it up. And I, I've been thinking, I've been toying with the notion that maybe it is the very seeking itself that is the thing that gets in the way of of just seeing things as they are because because it is like the, the very process of that assumes a separation from everything that is because you're trying to find something that isn't there <laughs> and i'm trying not to be ridiculous when i talk about this it's kind of difficult yeah towards the <laughs> end i think it can be that way but it's like um, you know, most people are so they've got so many desires, they're seeking so many different things that it's just like the matrix. And so one of the things that a spiritual path does is it reduces the things you're seeking down to one so that to let, finally let go of that is much easier than letting go of, you know, the whole spectrum of things that the average normie is is seeking and, and being attached to. So you, you get it all narrowed down to this one craving for enlightenment and then finally you realize that even that is craving and that's the cause of suffering so eventually you just let go of that one last little that one last little thing that you you've been still attached to mm. so the path can work that way but ultimately the path doesn't lead to the gates of nirvana mm. it's like in zen i think they call it the gateless gate yeah 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 something like that interesting But some people do manage to uh, have their experiences without meditating at all. I guess, yeah, like Ramana Maharshi that I mentioned before, or, you know, there's other, like Eckhart Tolle supposedly um, had his great awakening just as a result of uh, some kind of um, strange existential crisis he was having one night that just kind of jolted him out of his ruts. It was similar, like I had a similar, and again, I'm not pretending like, because I actually come to the realization to some degree that I don't think I'm anything really. <laughs> but it, it was similar for me when, when I started going through this process that I had a, a dark night of the soul one weekend, I would say, <clears throat> when a lot of things became apparent to me, a lot of these things. And it's, it's kind of put me on the path now where I don't feel like I need to seek anything anymore. 
And I, I feel as if it's, yeah, as I was saying before, it's, it's the very seeking that is the separation in itself. Um, yeah, and it kind of ties in with free will. And I wanted to have a bit of a chat to you about free will because I'd love to get your thoughts on free will that we think that we are something and therefore we think we are willing whatever is happening and we construct narratives to describe what is happening. Um, but clearly, I think um, when anyone sits, they, they have this realization that like, I'm not willing anything in any substantial way, if at all. Um, how do you view free will and how does Buddhism view free will? As, as a concept? Is it just completely nonsensical from the outset? Um, well, like I, I was saying a little earlier, it's like Buddhism or Orthodox Theravada seems to reject all of the options. You know, it's like free will is rejected like by the, the second sutta, the Anatalakana Sutta, which is saying that even volition is not under our complete control, but also determinism is out too because the Buddha uh, rejected like the Ajivakas, which was an ancient uh, philosophical school or, or religion that said that it's all just deterministic. You know, we're just uh, like robots working out our, our karma and we have no choice at all. He, he rejected that very strongly also. And so um, free will would sort of be like a middle path, just this um, paradoxical ambiguity that somehow something like that can happen. Like uh, Ramana Maharshi said, the only real choice that we have is to be mindful or not. But um, I've been having this idea. I read this book, uh, The Trickster and the Paranormal by George P. Hansen, and he pointed out that uh, with regard to the uh, reflexivity or self-reference creating paradox, you know, like the statement, I am lying, is because it's self-referential, it can be paradoxical and it can be neither true nor false. And so um, the way human consciousness works, especially if you're introspective, that's self-reference, and that can produce paradoxes, that can produce what should be impossible. And so I do have this hypothesis that something along the lines of free will could happen just through the paradox of being aware of yourself or being aware of the mind being aware of itself, causing this short circuit, you know, this, this strange self-referential paradoxical loop that can somehow allow the impossibility of something along the lines of free will to exist. Hmm. Yeah. That's, uh, that's, uh, basically what I was trying to, trying to say earlier on, I think if you guys didn't get it, but with, with the observer, you know, the fact and what separates you from like a, everyday worldling or a normie who just goes about his day making a narrative about his life and but just really just following you know every uh impulse that comes up that he doesn't even know the origination of you know but that fact that you have an observer that little bit of space between those uh you know this lack of free will and this thing that observes it you know it, it's in between that space somehow that where there is a little bit of free will, like which is, I think, what you were just saying. Is that correct, Ben Abbasa? Uh Something along those lines. Certainly the more conscious you are and the more like self-conscious you are, the more options you're going to have anyway. So um, 
like a like a fully enlightened being presumably wouldn't have free will because they're not making karma they're not making any volitional actions anymore so i i assume that a fully enlightened being would just uh, naturally do whatever is appropriate in the moment you know just flow with whatever is most appropriate without even having to to think about it or something but i mean trying to uh, second guess enlightened beings is very tricky but um uh yeah it's like at the very least, it's like the more self-aware you are, the closer you've got to something resembling free will anyway. At least the more choices you've got, the less likely you're just going to be just mechanically acting in accordance with your habits, which is pretty much what, what karma is at one level anyway. You know, karma is just like the autopilot that drives us through life because we're not conscious enough to make our own decisions. But exactly how free will and what it is and how it fits in is, uh, yeah, I think it's just a paradox because the logically free will just shouldn't shouldn't be possible at all. It, it also seems to me to be observationally impossible. I just don't see it anywhere. I just see happenings. But going back to the, the Buddhist notion of the no self, if there is no self, then how can there be a will or a, even a free will if, it, if it's just happenings? Well, from the Buddhist point of view, you would say that uh, a volition just uh, is its own dhamma. It's, you know, it's its own, has its, uh, it's, its own uh, phenomenon that really what a human being is is just this bundle of phenomena and uh, will would be you know, a certain aspect, one of the khandas, one of the, the aggregates that uh it really it's it doesn't have to have a self it's just it's in a way going with orthodox theravada in a way it has its its own essence you know its own individual being that um you know it doesn't really require any higher self you know it's just like part of the part of the chariot you know it's like the the axle of the chariot or something it's just one of the parts that just gets lumped together into a self but um it doesn't really need there's no logical need for there to be a self in order for there to be, you know, thoughts or, or feelings or, or volitions that, that just their own, they can just exist on their own, at least from a logical point of view. And also what about, you know, as a, you know, the Buddhist idea of not self, but also the concept of just not self, as opposed like this is not self, that is not self then maybe you don't get to something that's a self, but you get to something that's everlasting that you connect to, or that is in touch with, you know, ultimate reality, you know. You you peel away what's not self until you get to what's, uh, what's eternal or whatever word you want to use, you know what I mean? Which is... Um, yeah. Although... Again, it's like um, when you get to the something that's eternal, then you've gotten to the point of an absolute, you know, some sort of formless absolute that really um, you just can't wrap your head around it. And Buddhism just doesn't even go there. It doesn't even attempt to reify it or conceptualize it. You know, that's just uh, you, you might experience something along those lines when you, you penetrate through, you know, the, the veil of samsara or maya. Or, or, or something, but um, 
trying to think about it is just futile and you can just go insane trying to wrap your head around that sort of thing. So um, most religions, you know, they'll reify it. They'll say, you know, there is a God or there is, you know, Tao or an ultimate reality. But um, even even Nibbana or Nirvana, the Buddha really didn't talk about it very much at all. You know, he, it's kind of held up as a goal and, you know, a little bit is mentioned, mostly negatives, but it's, you know, it's like the end of delusion and, and suffering, that kind of a thing. But, um, um, yeah, even to call it an it is you're already kind of straying from, from uh, sanity. Hmm. So, you, you, uh, yeah, I mean, try, just trying to figure it out is just futile. It's, it's a koan. Yeah, I guess logically well, you, could, you can only really talk about what it's not because it isn't anything <laughs> in, a, in a sense. So it's just going to be negating every every thing that you try to put against it it's it's the only yeah, way you well, can say anything about about it that you yeah can't. well is 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 one extreme and isn't is the other extreme and buddhism takes the path by the middle yeah okay hmm. maybe maybe bill clinton is a buddhist and that's why he did that whole depends what the definition of is is and <laughs> that, uh, he's, he's actually a student of Narga, Narga Juna this yeah. whole time, that's what it's been. I wanted to ask, uh, the, the, you were toying with the idea of uh, maybe starting a kind of Sangha for Westerners, um, you know, obviously living as a full Theravadan monk is not tenable for most people anyway. Um, do you still have plans for something like that? I mean, um, some sort of group of people that can uh, practice and, and live simply and have, have guidance? Well, there certainly is a call for that. And um, there are a number of people who are, uh, um, they want to participate in that. And so um, right now I'm just kind of scrambling to, uh, to sort of get my life uh, kind of rearranged and settled and more or less stable, you know, sort of, uh, tenable you know just get my get myself uh kind of right side up you know after after dropping out of the monkhood after 30 years so um yeah right now i'm not really um focused on that specifically although there are quite a lot of people who um really are interested in that and um there is like a small group like uh you know like the subscribe star channel the discord server associated with that there are a number of people who are um um, you know, they really are wanting to get involved and get something going. And uh, one of the one of the difficulties of that is we're just scattered all over, you know, the Western world, essentially. So really getting like a geographical center going or like a group that is actually meeting face to face, that would involve a lot of uh, relocating for a lot of people. And so at present, it's mainly... Um, like-minded people that are communicating and sort of brainstorming and um uh yeah it would be good to have like maybe some real monks um you know living at a, a certain place that's getting getting supported and uh, just having um you know somebody like me giving advice on how to practice as a layperson because i'm getting firsthand experience at it now and um, just also bringing what I learned as a monk into that. So, I mean, I can do what I can to, uh, you know, share my experiences and uh, 
um, you know, offer my my participation. And uh, but but still, just one person isn't going to do it. It's going to take uh, a group of people getting together and and working on it together to get uh, some sort of maybe a compromise form of of traditionalist Theravada Buddhism going in the West. Maybe uh, I mean I'm I'm reluctant to start setting up new rules that kind of a thing. Although you know, if you don't have any rules, then you know the structure. Um, you know, you're lacking structure and everything can fall apart really easily. So it's, um, it's, it's largely an experimental stage right now. Although, uh, there are people that are, that are very eager and, uh, we are trying to get to a kind of, uh, at least some kind of website going where, uh, it will, uh, um, sort of serve as a, like a focal point for what we're trying to do with uh, people more than one person being involved in running the, the website, you know, n- numerous contributors, um, maybe something along the, the lines of, uh, what is it, right-wing Dharma squad or something like that. And um, just establishing a presence of more or less traditional Buddhism to serve as, a, as an alternative to what most Buddhism is turning into in the West, which is like the ultra-liberal social justice stuff. Yeah, I liked your idea too. Uh, I heard you mentioning of uh, you know your um, you brought up the cynics, you know, yeah, and, uh, and have maybe some dharmic reboot of the cynics or something. <laughs> I like that. I'm, I'm yeah, fond of yeah, I kind of like that idea also. And um, yeah. you know, some something, some sort of a philosophy that is sort of a, you know rejects the status quo, but is a higher moral level. You know, not just uh, hippies or you know, type. Yeah, people, you know, and wearing normal clothes and growing your hair longer and. Um... You know, eating eating in the afternoon wouldn't necessarily be uh, illegal or banned or anything, and there wouldn't necessarily be a uniform, but at least people would, uh, you know, they'd be uh, uh, looking to to Dhamma for guidance and living a relatively simple, uncomplicated, you know, nonviolent sort of existence, and uh, um, you know, res- communicating with each other and interacting with each other, maybe supporting real renunciance that are like ordained sangha as, as part of their practice. Um, yeah, it's definitely workable. And I think uh, something, I mean, when there's a will, there's a way. And it does seem that uh, we are making slow progress in that direction. Yeah. Or maybe you could even have a renunciant level within this sort of group. Yeah. Yeah. Although, again, it's like setting up new rules and everything is... Uh, it's it's something I'm reluctant to do, although it does appear to be to some degree practically necessary. So, um, yeah, I've I, I really don't want to uh, bind myself without a rope again by setting up new rules that I have to follow. Whereas uh, it could be that um, just following your own wisdom. You know, if you're cultivating wisdom, then you're going to be more likely to act wisely anyway. And if there is a group, then one of the valuable functions of the group that uh, really is not um, capitalized upon by most Buddhist groups is like what happens in some Christian groups where you've got one person who's um, acting questionably, 
you know, or he's having some kind of troubles, you know, he's, he's drinking too much or something. And then the other people can kind of get together and admonish him and like, you know, try to try to set him right on the path again, that kind of thing, which, um, I mean, that could be useful also. I could do with a bit of that admonishment, uh, probably it'd be useful for me. (laughs) I I, I admonish you right here. Thanks. You're admonished. Thanks. I needed that. Yeah. Um, one of the things I definitely wanted to talk to you about while we got you is your new book that's coming out. Um, so let's do a shameless plug for that. Um, yeah. Yeah, Thoughts of an incendiary monk. Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Um, yeah, actually as a monk, I've wrote lots and lots of philosophical stuff. And, um, the second book actually came out yesterday. It's, um, it's uh, collections of um, Buddhist essays and philosophical essays. So the first one that um, both of them are on Amazon now, because I, I resorted to Amazon self-publishing because that was the the easiest and most obvious way of of getting things published rather than you know submitting manuscripts to to editors and that kind of a thing. You know that could last forever. So um, yeah, I just uh, edited it myself. And uh, the first volume is Essays in Theravada Buddhism, which is, um, as you might imagine, um, focusing on Theravada specifically. And then the second, the second volume that came out yesterday, also on Amazon, is uh, Philosophical Dharma, which is more broad-ranging and a little bit more edgy, I think. And uh, it includes, like... Um, discussions of Mahayana and Hinduism and some Christianity and Western philosophy and uh, critiques of scientific materialism and postmodernism and that sort of thing. And then the third volume that I'm, I'm editing right now that I'm working on um, nowadays is uh, it's going to be called Buddhist ethics, Buddhist practice, which is going to be more practical in, in its uh, approach. And uh, the subtitle to all of the books is uh, Writings of an Incendiary Buddhist Monk. They are available. The first two volumes are available on Amazon, both in uh, hard copy and uh, uh, ebook Kindle version. Well, I was just going to say, have you sold any yet? <laughs> yeah. Few- yeah, I'm not sure about the second one that just came out yesterday, but uh, yeah, the first volume I've sold uh, sold a number of copies already. I haven't started advertising yet, though. So that's something yeah. I'm going to have to figure out. I mean, without advertising, nobody's going to know. So You might want to get on Twitter, mate. Oh, Twitter. Yeah, I was told Facebook also. But mm. um, yeah, I hesitate to to even stick my toe into Twitter or Facebook. Um, I was I was told that uh, by one person, a really intriguing idea of uh, hyping the book on 4chan, which <laughs> might actually uh, be more my kind of uh, audience anyway, like lit on 4chan. Yeah. I guess you can actually advertise there. So uh that that's an option too, and then of course there's just advertising with uh, Amazon. Just give them a, a little bit more of the cut for each book, just to have them plug your book a little bit. Mm. Yeah, I think um, Twitter's the ultimate samsaric test in many ways. So maybe it's a good thing if you you join up and have a go. Yeah, yeah. I also uh, uh, even considered advertising the book in some of like the the, the mainstream Buddhist magazines like Tricycle or something. And then I was thinking, well, that's going to result in uh, numerous one-star 
reviews. <laughs> but but I guess bad press is better than no press at all. So yeah. that's an option too. Infamy sells for sure. Yeah. Well, and it also, uh, you know, they probably won't advertise you, but they may review you. You know, I, uh, I didn't get to finish this video the other day, but, it, um, you know, you were talking with, uh, Eru, uh, that about, um, there was some academic publication mentioning the two of you anyways, you know, you and, uh, and Brian and, yeah. um, and it's kind of, I, I didn't get to finish that video, but, um. It was uh, what I was hearing was funny. I mean, that's, you know, because even if, you know, you got reviewed in Tricycle, there are probably sincere but disillusioned Buddhists reading Tricycle, you know? Yeah. Like yeah. I assume there would be at least a few people just out of desperation they're reading it because they don't know anything better to read, you know? So a, a lot of people get um, bad press. Like you said, it's, it can be good press, too, because it can help you find people who didn't know they were looking for this. Yeah. So advertising is completely alien territory for me. So I still have to. Uh, that's one of the many things I still have to figure out as a, as a lay person. I just just today I, I got long pants for the first time in like 30 years. I've been wearing shorts and, and just like uh, monk flip flops. Up until just today, I finally got some real shoes and some real pants. Wow. So I've, I've still got lots of catching up to do. That uh, starting starting with, uh, you know, almost from scratch is uh, taking some doing. What did you get? Some uh, some Nikes or a nice pair of low uh, shoes? <laughs> um, I got, uh, yeah, they're, they're like deck shoes, like Gilligan shoes or oh, something. Yeah, nice, nice. All yeah. rounders. Nice one. Yeah. Yeah, I think Twitter Twitter can be useful for advertising, um, networking. Obviously, we we're, we're originally going to talk about Bronze Age mindset, but that that was primarily um, done through Twitter. I'm led to believe, and and you know, gained great popularity as a result. Oh, I thought it was 4chan. No, yeah, he was, probably 4chan. I thought as he well. was a big yeah. deal on 4chan. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe, but Twitter is really his his uh, main. Day, I guess, of support. I mean, people on 4chan probably like them too, but 4chan isn't as big as Twitter for one. Honestly, I've only looked in on 4chan. I've never used it. I, I kind of find it incomprehensible yeah. in a way. Huh. Yeah. yeah, I'm surprised that um, that Bronze Age pervert could even exist on Twitter, considering that even uh, God's Own Fool got, got chopped. <laughs> it's it's, it's he, a reasonable he, thing. Yeah. Words thing. Hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, the book Bronze Age Mindset. He seems to be uh, endorsing like uh, some kind of uh, violent accelerationism, and uh, you know, even kind of verging into uh, fascism. I think he calls it a barbaric paganism. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Did we yeah. get? Did we make it through the list there, Alex? Or? Yeah, I think so. I think there's only so much talking about nothing that you can do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but, <laughs> yeah using dualistic language to talk about non-duality is uh yeah kind of tricky it is tricky but i think it was a good chat i got a lot out of this definitely. good so i'm, I'm grateful for your insight panyo basa thank you now nah, you're yeah. welcome he's all he's always on twitter telling everybody they're nothing <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i'm i'm yeah, not really, really on you twitter don't know anything yeah <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, he, he's not. He's something. Uh, his bundle of his bundle of scandals is on Twitter. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I'm not on Twitter. Um, I'm not yeah. anywhere. <laughs> <laughs>